This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode three, top questions on Powell's Paradox, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with John Hill, Ben Jeffrey, Ben Reitzes, Dan Creeder, and Greg Anderson from our FIC Macro Strategy team, along with Michael Gregory from BMO Economics, to answer top questions posed by clients surrounding the recent market action in the sectors that we cover. Before we get started, also on the horizon is the Institutional Investor Survey. If you value our podcasts and our written work, please remember us in this year's survey. If you need any information, reach out to us individually or to your BMO representative. The polling opens April 8th, and we greatly appreciate your support. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. On the heels of the massive rally in Treasury yields and spread tightening, we review our top client questions across the street and markets. Namely, we're looking at what's the next Fed move, when to add duration and steepener positions, where will spreads go from nearly multi-year tights, What's next for the Bank of Canada and which central bank will cut rates first? Let's begin with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey from our rates team. After reaching multi-year highs last November, it's been a black diamond ski slope for Treasury yields. The latest leg lower was clearly prompted by the Fed's dovish surprise at the March meeting. This resulted in an inversion in the closely watched three-month tens. The top question asked by our clients is, what's the next move for the Fed? So the way that we've been thinking about it is the Fed has likely gotten to the terminal point of the cycle and that cuts are coming. Just not yet. It still may be several quarters as a lot of the underlying domestic data still remains relatively robust, even if darkening clouds are clearly appearing on the horizon, be it especially some of the foreign developments in Europe, but also some evidence of slowing domestically. So we think the next move will be a cut to the downside. It's a question of timing that development. And I think what you've seen over the past week or so following what we learned from the dot plot in March reflects exactly that reality, that the 2019 dots now reflects no more hikes till at least the end of the year. And the 2020 dot is only one additional 25 basis point raise. And the Fed's not going to want to risk pushing policy rates just another quarter point higher just to have the market screen policy error and then blame them for any impending recession. And that's exactly right. The market took the end of hikes being signaled in 2019 as a signal that we need to move on to the next step. And the next step, once you finish hiking rates, is a pivot to a cut cycle. And it makes sense the price action that's followed on since then, where you've seen a relatively deep inversion or at least comparatively deep in twos, threes, fives, and the follow-on as 
once you roll the clock forward several years in the future, you feel more and more comfortable pricing and cuts, even if the expectation is that, say, cuts aren't necessarily happening in 2019, but they're much more likely to have occurred by the end of 2021. So John and Ben, let me ask you a quick question here. Do you think with the rallying twos and the inversion between Fed funds effective and twos that the U.S. market has gone too far here? Or do you think that we actually will have a cut by the end of the year? I think your question is a, is a really good one, Margaret, because a lot of conversations we've been having recently have pointed to exactly that. And while it, it would be tempting to say, whoa, two-year yields quite far below effective Fed funds, that, that seems like the market's getting a little over its skis. But if you look historically, you've actually seen that inversion, so to speak, that twos going through effective Fed funds can get quite deep. So even though obviously the rally of the past several sessions has been large, no matter which way you cut it, there still could be room to go from here. I'd also point out that the two-year tenor covers not only 2019, but also 2020. So say you had confidence that there were going to be no cuts in 2019, two-year yields capture the forward expectation into 2020. So were cuts to be priced in in March, June, September, December, what have you, in 2020, you would still see that reflected into two-year pricing. Well, that makes sense. You could have a, a back-end tail there of 100 basis points or 50 basis points or even 25 basis points, depending on how the economy evolves. So one question for you on this topic. So your base case here is that the Fed will remain on hold for an extended period of time? Yes, that's exactly right. In order for cuts to manifest themselves, I think we would not only need to see downside risks to the economy, but also see them begin to manifest themselves. Or said differently, even if growth is starting to slow, you'll need to see a more material deterioration in other series, be it ISMs or, frankly, some weakening in a very strong labor market. And if you start to see that, I think pretty quickly you're going to see policymakers, whether it be through Fed speak, through FOMC statements, through press conferences, through the dot plot, you're going to start to see policymakers starting to prep the market for that reality. Because remember, the, the last thing the committee wants to do is to surprise investors with, with any kind of spark decision. Yeah. The reality is no sitting member of the FOMC has indicated that cuts are imminent. Right. So we don't have cuts that are imminent at this current time, and, and we know that, but we also have a market that's easing for the Fed. And does that support your case for the extended period of uh, Fed on hold? To your point, it actually does. Because you have lower funding costs and lower interest rates across the curve, that corresponds to easier financial conditions, which will assist the Fed in staying on hold longer. We think eventually that support gives way to a need to cut, but probably prolongs the process. Well, wonderful. Thank you both. I'd like to next move on to the second largest question for the rates market, and that is really when to add duration and steepener positions. So timing the cyclical re-steeping into the curve is going to be one of the core decisions investors need to make in 2019. And one of the ways that we've been discussing it is it often depends on which curve spread you're looking at. But say let's focus on 2s, 10s, or 5s, 30s right now. This process has potentially already begun. You see 5s, 30s at 12, 15-month highs, and it's clearly beginning to play out where the expectation of cuts is being priced into the belly, and 5s, 30s is steepening from here. So we continue to like that trade, although it's getting a little bit crowded. 
And I think saying that trend is already underway in no way implies that, you know, the train has already left the station. I think any hawkishness we see from the committee, any good economic data we see could still provide a flattening impulse to the curve. And in our view, any flattening from here would just really provide an attractive entry point into setting course deepener positions. And that's in fives, thirties, and twos, tens. Do you have specific levels that you're you're looking for? So twos, tens has remained relatively range bound. So twos, tens has been an interesting point of discussion on the desk currently, as it has yet to break to even year-to-date highs. Currently, it sits in about the mid-teens, having bottomed out around 10 basis points in the wake of the March FOMC. And I think in order to see twos, tens really steepen, you're going to need to start to see increasing confidence that cuts are coming in the next two years, rather than the market just kind of flirting with that notion. And as it pertains to 530s, I think similar to some of the recent flattening we've seen, any move back towards 60 basis points or even back into the 50 to 60 basis point range, I think would be an, an appealing place to enter steepeners. The reality is the Fed has told us the curve should be moving steeper. We've seen this play out in forward pricing, but at a more fundamental point, the latest SEP dots showed a Fed at best getting rates still below neutral. So by pausing below neutral, they're suggesting that not only are rates currently lower than they would be in the long run, which is a big important factor for 10 or 30 year yields, but if you believe cuts are coming, at best, we remain short of neutral at 275. And at worst, we're going back towards zero lower bound in coming quarters. And in outright terms, I think the moves we've seen recently that have brought 10-year yields down through effective Fed funds into the 230 range, I'm not sure that we would call to add duration at that point. But it's not out of the question that you see yields back up back towards 250, maybe even a little bit beyond. If that were the case, we think that that would be a dip that would be bought fairly aggressively. However, 3% tens might be something that we've seen the last of this cycle. So if you were to summarize your base case for for the first question, what's the next move for the Fed? The bottom line is that the market is eased for the Fed and the Fed will remain on pause, on hold for an extended period of time followed by a cut. Is that correct? Yes, that is our base case. And obviously, it will depend on how certain economic developments end up coming out. But at least for now, we think there's a resolute desire in the FOMC to stay on hold that eventually will have to give way to cuts corresponding to the end of the cycle. Right. And inflation is clearly key here, I think, with the chairman saying in in the presser that they really needed to see inflation at their target in order to move rates higher. And they haven't been able to achieve that target for some time. Well, thank you very much, both Ben and John, for your comments today. And we look forward to updates as the market continues to move around. Thanks very much, Margaret. I'd like to move on to Michael Gregory now, who's part of our economics team. Michael, we've been talking about the Fed and interest rates and the curve, and I know that the economics team has recently changed their view. Can you explain perhaps the top three key events in the market that was the catalyst for you changing your view and how you think that this evolves going forward? Sure. Well, I mean, one of the key catalysts for us changing our view is is the change in the dot plot. We were much more pessimistic on the potential for uh, 
rates anyway, in terms of number of rate increases that uh, the Fed had factored in. Recall in the December dot plot, they had three hikes over the course of the next couple of years. We only had one anyway. And when they moved to one over that period, we, we felt a little more comfortable uh, just going to no rate increases, the Fed remaining unchanged for the next little while, in part because of the inflation picture. We think that, uh, once again, that the inflation metrics show no signs at all of uh, accelerating. It looks like we're stuck in terms of core PCE inflation in that sort of 1.8 to 2.0% range. And uh, we see little, little signs of that really moving out there. And I think the Fed very desperately wants to get inflation above 2%. And I think they're going to hold rates here until you know they literally see the, the whites of inflation's eyes. If we do not get any acceleration in inflation over the, say, the next three to six months, I would not be surprised at all if the Fed prods things a little further and actually does cut rates. I think it's all about the inflation story. Yes, it's true. Financial conditions broadly uh, will uh, be, have an impact on Fed policy. But I think for them at this stage, and given the commentaries we heard from Powell in the last press conference, I do think it's very much about inflation. Those numbers actually have to start going up or the Fed's going to get rather antsy. So we think it will go up a bit, enough to perhaps preclude an ease in the near term. But uh, we think it has to at least go up to two and a half percent and above and stay there for the Fed to actually even think about hiking rates again. So really, it's the notion that a preemptive hike is off the table and preemptive in the past is how they operated. And now they're messaging that they, they really need to see inflation on the ground and symmetry around the inflation number before they move again. Is that correct? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely correct. You know, the disinflationary headwinds which are secular in nature, technology-enabled disruption, demographics, they aren't going to go away anytime soon. So the Fed does have some leeway here. And they know that to, to maintain inflation at least at 2%, they have to make sure they're going to have to hold their policy rates slightly below the longer run neutral level in order to achieve that goal to offset, in effect, those secular disinflationary headwinds. In effect, you have a, a short-run neutral rate that is below the long-run neutral rate. Well, wonderful, Michael. Thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you. So we've had so much attention in the rates markets over the past several weeks, but at the same time, spreads have narrowed quite dramatically. It's really a good time to bring this over to Dan Creter, who heads up our high-quality spread sector. Dan, the next biggest question we've been getting from clients, and you in particular, is really where will spreads go from here when they're already trading at the multi-year tights versus treasuries? Yeah, you said it, Margaret. I mean, spreads have really tightened dramatically, and it's somewhat counterintuitive. We Usually when we see a significant rally in the treasury market, spreads tend to underperform. It's been the opposite this time. Swap spreads in particular have narrowed through the treasury rally and are nearing multi-year lows. Maybe more what we'd expect in the credit markets. We have a yield grab with everyone pricing out the Fed, and spreads have continued to narrow, everyone trying to reach even further for that extra basis point in yield. So where we are now, just looking at the high-quality spread markets that we cover, agencies, SSAs, and highly rated corporates, we're down to near multi-year lows. But it is worth pointing out here, it's important that we're not at all-time lows yet. And, and that could be important when we think about where spreads are going to go, because we think spreads are going to stay very tight and could even make new lows in some circumstances. And, and there's a few reasons for this. The first one is just supply technicals, and we'll start with the treasury market. We know that there's been exceptionally heavy coupon supply and that that coupon supply isn't slowing down anytime soon. 
Well, when we have heavier treasury issuance, it stands to reason that we should see tighter spreads. Just even from a liquidity premium standpoint, when you buy a treasury, you're buying the most liquid investment in the world. But with all treasuries out there, that liquidity, liquidity premium deteriorates, and we should see tighter spreads. Secondly, the reverse is true in spread markets. We're seeing much lower issuance, specifically in the high-quality markets like agencies and SSAs, where it post-crisis lows in issuance. And even the corporate market has slowed significantly since corporate tax reform was implemented. So the combination of heavy treasury supply and light spread market supply should keep spreads well-contained here. And also when just thinking about what, what even could widen spreads, more issuance, like I just said, doesn't seem likely. And then, you know, a macro event always could, but it looks like Brexit is probably going to not end too badly at this point with the most recent news. And amid a yield grab environment, I think people are just going to keep reaching for for more and more spreads, should keep spreads well contained. So Dan, we're looking at some of these spreads here and in the front end of the agency market, we're single digits, we're picking five to six. Uh, we're still, you know, a couple basis points off the narrows. So the play here, it's limited. It's limited maybe almost by the zero bound or the zero spread level. But so you're saying if I'm just looking at agencies, two, threes and fives, and they're spread at about five, six over, you know, do you think those can get down to the two, three range? Yeah, I mean, I think spreads could continue to narrow to historical lows, which is the two to three range in agencies and obviously wider in other markets. And I just want to be very clear. My point isn't to say I think now is a good time to buy spreads versus treasuries because it's not. But the point I'm trying to make is tight treasury spread shouldn't make you want to avoid the market altogether. I think that the spreads to treasuries are going to stay very tight and we should look at taking advantage of that view in other ways. So even if we're not building new positions, if we have new, if we have existing positions, maybe we don't have to sell those. Keep that carry in your portfolio. Or my preferred play at the moment is to put on asset swaps, hold high quality spreads versus versus the swap curve. Because unlike credit spreads, I do think we might start to see some swap spread widening after a, you know a pretty dramatic narrowing of the past few months. So, Dan, why do you expect swap spread widening after this dramatic tightening? Well, when we, when we talk about swap spreads, there's really two main factors, LIBOR and repo at play. And we'll talk about each one individually. LIBOR has, has come in quite significantly over the past few months. And I don't see too much reason to think LIBOR is going to turn wider in the near term. We have very light redemptions in the, in the CDCP market in the weeks ahead. And prime fund flows continue to be strong, likely because we have an inverted yield curve. So, I mean, people are just putting their money in, in money market funds. So I think LIBOR will stay low. Where the rationale for a swap spread widener comes in is I think repo will start to finally see some relief. First and most directly, quarter end by the time you're listening to this has passed. And uh, we should see some relief just from the end of quarter end. But also we have Fed balance sheet normalization that's going to start addressing the collateral problem that's weighed so heavily on repo markets. Uh, And also it's worth noting that two weeks ago, effective Fed funds printed above IOER for the very first time. And we know that the Fed has additional tools ready to deploy in order to try to keep the Fed funds rate closer to the middle of their target range, whether that's another IOER cut or the implementation of a repo facility, buying bills, whatever that next tool is, that's going to be used to provide further relief for the repo market. So we should start to see repo rates coming down. Now the quarter end has passed us and that, that all things equal should lead to swap spreads moving wider. Okay, so Dan, if you were to bottom line us on your view for the spreads market, you know, here in the near term, what would you say? 
It's very difficult to get excited about spreads at the moment, to be very sure. But I, I, I do think swap spreads are going to finally start to bounce here. So whether that's taking advantage of that view by going into swap spread wideners directly or just going into asset swaps with high quality spreads, we should see credit spreads remain well supported and outperform widening swap spreads here in the, in the, in the near term. Great. Thank you very much, Dan. We appreciate your commentary today. I'd like to bring Ben Reitzes into the conversation now, who's part of our FIC macro strategy team. We've heard all of these different impacts on the U.S. market. Ben, what about the Bank of Canada? Well, for the Bank of Canada, it is going to depend heavily on what the Federal Reserve does. And uh, if the Fed does end up cutting rates next, then the Bank of Canada will likely follow suit. The macro backdrop in Canada is actually uh, meaningfully bleaker than in the U.S. Uh, household debt ratios are significantly higher, and we're sitting with a, a record household debt service ratio. And so households are exceptionally vulnerable to where rates are right now. And the reality is, is, is given the vulnerability in Canada, if the Fed is cutting rates because of a weaker U.S. economy, the likelihood is that Canada is actually in much worse shape. And so we would expect the bank very much to follow suit for the Fed. Whether the first move would be 25 or 50 down, that really depends on, on how things are evolving. But I firmly believe that uh, you will see the bank follow suit. Looking at the curve generally for Canada, we would probably uh, echo uh, what, what, what we expect in the U.S. In the near term, we don't expect that cut to come just yet. We have rates expected to stay flat through the rest of this year. And so that means the front end of the Canada curve right now is probably on the rich side of things. And given that we believe the 10-year sector is a little bit more anchored from largely global factors as much as anything else, and just a general lack of duration availability in Canada, that leaves some room for the curve to flatten a little bit over the near term. We could see twos, tens flattening a little bit more over the next three to six months. And uh, similar to our U.S. call, we, we believe that would be an excellent opportunity to uh, enter into steepeners. Twos, tens, fives, tens, uh, both of those are our uh, steepeners of choice at this point. We'd like to get into those a kind of a closer to a flat level than where we are now. Uh, it is going to take some patience, but we do believe that we will get there over the course of the next quarter or two. Well, thank you, Ben, for your time today. Let's bring Greg Anderson into the discussion now. Greg is the global head of FX Strategy. Greg, one of the main questions we're also getting from our investors is which central bank will cut rates first? So it's a great question. And uh, what the market has priced in, at least for the major central banks, is the RBA cutting first. And the full 25 basis points is, is priced in for the RBA by August. And then let's call it about 32 basis points through the end of the year. In my mind, this is a, a bit of a mispricing by the market, and the market's gotten way ahead of itself. While RBA Governor Philip Lowe has kind of earned his credentials as the uh, most dovish G10 central banker, he's earned it by being passively dovish. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, 2017 and 2018, uh, full years that he was uh, head of the central bank, Australia grew by 2.4% in 2017, 2.8% in 2018. The unemployment rate dipped below what he had said was uh, full employment. And through that whole time period, he sat with a base rate of 150, while the Fed hiked eight times, the Bank of Canada five times, the Bank of England twice. But that's passive dovishness. Uh, so the market pricing in that, that he is going to cut uh, over the next six months in my mind, that, that's just getting too far ahead. 
for a central bank that's got a negative output gap and inflation at 1.8%, right, like right near target. I, I don't think so. So we like Aussie. Uh, we like Aussie particularly against Euro and think, I think there's attractive here. So, Greg, what do you think about the BOE in the face of Brexit? Are they on schedule to cut? So there are a few basis points priced in for the Bank of England. And I would say that if, if we have a no-deal Brexit on April 12th, I think it's highly likely that the Bank of England would, would cut within a month after that and probably cut by the 50 basis points that they have hiked over the last couple of years. I guess everybody can put their own odds sort of on what's the probability of no-deal Brexit. There's a futures market pricing in at about 20% right now. I might put it a little north of that. But if we were to talk about a central bank that w- would cut over the next three months, that's the scenario. Uh, no-deal Brexit and the Bank of England cuts. Okay, so very short-term type of situation. You know, we know that the economic situation in Europe seems more dire, well, clearly is more dire than in the U.S. Why wouldn't the ECB ease policy first or even the BOJ? So I, I guess we could kind of say the ECB sort of in the way that it could already eased policy with the TLTRO. And that's about all that they can do. They're sitting there with a negative base rate that is unpopular with the banking sector and and arguably uh, is stifling growth. And then they had such a political kerfuffle over uh, starting and then ending uh, quantitative easing through bond purchase program. You just can't, you can't start that again before, at least before the new ECB president is, is put in in November. So the ECB is is stuck. They may want to cut, but they can't cut. Okay, and where where do you think the Fed fits into all of this and the, and the Bank of Canada? The Fed clearly has the most room because they have tightened the most. So just give me you know your thoughts on that. So the Fed has tightened the most, and is, the Fed is the only G10 central bank that has a positive real target rate. And so yeah, they've got the most room. And I would say leadership-wise, they've got the most political scope to, to move as well. And the Bank of Canada, having tightened five times, uh, certainly has a little bit of space to cut. But, you know, there's, there's no output gap. And easing at this point, you do it to follow the Fed and to prevent your currency from, from strengthening if, if the Fed is easing. But Beyond that, there's not really a case for it. And I, th- I think that uh, Pelos would be reluctant to take that step on his own. Okay, so bottom line us on this. Who do you think is the first to cut? Maybe the first three to cut, you know, if we're looking at by, you know, a year from now. So in, in the case of no deal Brexit, Bank of England first, and then the, the Fed second. Normal uh, maturation of the economic cycle and global slowdown, the Fed is first, and then maybe second is Bank of Canada and and third is Bank of England, something like that in that order. Okay, very, very good. Thank you so much, Greg, for your insights today. Thank you. So we've covered a variety of the top questions that you, our clients, have brought to us over the past week. We'd like to thank you for listening to this podcast, and we encourage you to continue to send your questions in. We really value your questions, your support, and your feedback. Thank you for listening.
Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash Macro Horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.